Fantastic. My name is Frank. It's good to be in God's house, isn't it? I, uh, I just love coming to this place. I'm, it's kind of weird. Uh, well, we're in a series, uh, and we're beginning to look ahead to uh, a future that God has guaranteed. And if you have missed what we've talked about so far, I would just encourage you to go back and watch online or check the podcast or whatever, uh, because we're going to be on a journey. And um, God wanted to make sure that none of us missed what's going to happen. And we've spent the last few weeks looking at how God is preparing the world for the arrival of the Antichrist. We've been talking about how the world is being groomed. It's being groomed economically. It's being groomed intellectually. It's being groomed theologically. And, and at the same time, the arrival of the Antichrist also means that soon thereafter is the arrival of Jesus. And, and beginning next week, we're gonna look specifically at uh, some of the prophecies of the end times and begin to open that up a little bit with Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, the book of Revelation. We'll begin talking about that. And I had promised today that we we're gonna talk about the rapture, but we're not. So, and the reason is, as I begin to pray about it, we're gonna talk about the rapture in three weeks, well, not for three weeks, in about, yeah, whenever. Okay, but here's the thing. As I begin to process what we're doing here, what we're talking about, there's an elephant in the room. There's something we have to talk about. Because if we don't talk about this, we're never going to be able to wrestle with and find peace in the book of Revelation. You see, in the end times room, there's something we don't talk about. And I've heard very few pastors teach on this. But I have to admit that it gnaws at us, every one of us. It makes us uncomfortable. And if we were really honest, and maybe if we weren't in this place, it makes us question God. It takes us back to the Old Testament where he wipes out scores of people, even children and infants. It, it makes us struggle. We read about Ananias and Sophia I mean, dropping dead in the church because they didn't tithe correctly. And then we read what happens in tribulation and there's a part of us going, wait a minute. There's an elephant in this room. When we read about the seal and the bold judgments, it takes us back to the plagues that God sent on Egypt and it seems harsh. It seems unloving. And at times, honestly, if, if we were going to whisper it, we'd say it almost seems sinful that God would wipe out all these people that he would take out his anger in such a way on his own creation. How can you bring judgment on the people you love? How can wrath being poured out be measured justice? If God is love, where does this justice and wrath thing come from? Yet the idea of our loving God pouring out his wrath, we, we find it kind of old-fashioned, outdated, and honestly embarrassing. How can we make sense of the book of Revelation if we don't wrestle with his wrath? Scriptures are clear. The God we worship is capable of great wrath and anger. We're not talking about a little anger. Revelation 7 talks about, or Revelation speaks of seven bowls of symbolic wrath 
Seven is the full and complete number in the Bible. It's a perfect number. These bowls are full. They're overflowing. They're running over, and so is God's wrath. If you look at Revelation, it's an account of the wrath of God in all of God's sea boiling, thunder rolling, earthquake rattling fury. Here we see the kitchens of heaven essentially just storing up, making up wrath and bowls to be poured out. And what we read is not just a description of the wrath of God, it's a hand clapping, hallelujah shouting celebration that he's coming back. But I have to tell you, it makes me uncomfortable. Like I said, there's an elephant in the room. God's wrath is coming. It's going to be horrible in ways we haven't even thought about defining horrible. Jesus is going to return to judge and punish, and yet it's called our blessed hope. That's a pretty big honking elephant. Most preachers and composers of worship songs treat the biblical truth of the wrath of God sort of like Victorians treated sex. It's there, but you need to allude to it because it's shameful. You see, God is love, so we can't really associate him with wrath. You see, if we talked about his wrath, people wouldn't come to him. God is love, so he has to be in indefinitely tolerant we would say preachers have been careful how they speak about the wrath of god to some there's the danger that all we're doing is scaring the hell out of people and making frightened converts who don't really mean what they say to others speaking of the wrath of god is inconsistent with their picture of god who's full of love and mercy and second chances Wrath to us suggests a God that's lost control. This irrational outburst of anger where he's, he's like Popeye in the spinach moment. That's all I can stand, and I can't stand anymore. It's like God just finally reaches a point where he just blows it. It may seem like wounded pride or the poor effects of a really bad temper. So as too often happens, we get uncomfortable with God, so we try to clean him up instead of trying to understand him. We want to explain away what the Bible really says. We tend to do this when Jesus says he's the only way. We tend to do this when Jesus says he's coming back to pour out his wrath. We shape the truth to make us feel better about him and about us. Do you know the Bible mentions the wrath of God over 500 times? 500 times. It's a consistent theme throughout the Bible. You can't remove God's wrath from the Bible any more than you can remove his mercy. In fact, without understanding God's wrath, you'll never even understand his mercy and what Jesus did on the cross. You see, if you don't understand the full weight of what Jesus did on the cross, the cross makes no sense. If, if Jesus went to take the wrath of our sins on himself, 
then the magnitude of that wrath in some way shapes our views of the sacrifice he really made. And how badly we need to be saved from it. The wrath of God is coming. God has deep mercy for us. He took the wrath himself. But if we explain away the wrath of God, then we explain away the very reason Jesus went to the cross. And our salvation means nothing. Unfortunately, that's what happens to many who sit in pews across this country and around the world week to week. God's wrath has been glossed over. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal because honestly to us, our sins don't seem that bad. We've embraced a faith that does not align with God's word. We have a faith that's anemic and weak and then we wonder why it doesn't hold up. In fact, we're going to learn today that God can't be loving unless his wrath is fully manifested in all of its all of its fury. Love and wrath are intertwined and interdependent. Let's look at what God tells us through Paul. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. In order for love to be sincere, I have to hate what's evil. For most Western Christians, hate is the last word that would be associated with love. But a love that does not contain a hatred of evil is not the love that the Bible speaks. We, like Christ, must love every person. And it must be genuine, but we also have to just as much genuinely hate evil and what it's doing to them. We have to have a hate for sin. We must have a hate for Satan. We have to hate what sin is doing to our world, to our governments, to our people, to our leaders, to our family, and to our friends. We have to hate how Satan is defeating and and deceiving people. All the while, at the same time, we literally have to love the hell out of them. In fact, true love Genuine love is not just a feeling, it's a feeling that drives action. There's no true love without wrath. True love must hate and take action against everything that's not loving. A husband who did not respond or did not get upset with his wife's infidelity with a jealous anger would demonstrate his lack of care for her. You see, if you love somebody and they hurt you, it pours out a wrath. You have a wrath inside of you. If it didn't matter to you, if they weren't important to you, it wouldn't matter. Does that make sense? A parent who stood by passively while their child is being harmed or abused is not loving their child. Love sometimes brings about and demands not only an objection to what's wrong, but an action to stop it. If you truly love your child, you can't just disagree with what's happening to them. You have to stop it. Sometimes love involves wrath applied. We all know this, right? I mean, I mean, if I'm passive or unaffected by the wrongs that are being done to people, then I'm unloving. Think about the events 
recently in Texas. We often ask, how could somebody do that to another human? How is this even possible? Who would do such a thing? Who would allow such a thing? Where do those questions come from? Why are we asking? They're coming from our love for other people, people we've never met. You see, unless God detests sin and evil with great loathing, he can't be a God of love. You see, it's his love that sets off his wrath. He loves everybody. He hates what Satan's doing to them, and worse, he hates that they're allowing it. Yet for some reason, when it comes to God, we expect him to be loving. In fact, we demand that he's loving. But when his wrath is poured out, when he responds to things that are unjust and unloving, we reject him. We spend hours of our lives crying out for God to do something, to stop the hate, to stop the wars, to stop the murders, to stop the rapes, to stop the molestation of children, to stop starvation, to stop racial hatred, to stop bigotry, to stop intolerance, stop whatever you want to name. We cry out to God, when are you going to do something? We cry out for justice. We pray for things to be right. And then we see God patiently holding back what's coming. We say he's doing nothing. He's just waiting, waiting for a day, waiting for those who sin to confess, trusting Jesus to be forgiven. You see, his patience is another expression of his love. Yet there's a day on the horizon when God from his throne says enough. There's a day when our loving God will do the most loving thing. He will finally bring justice for those who for centuries have been crying out to him for justice. See, a God that doesn't respond to our pleas doesn't respond in love. Revelation 6, 9. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They're literally at the throne in heaven. God, how long are you going to wait? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These people are going to be killed for Jesus. They're going to be killed because people are following Satan. They're going to get to heaven and go, how much longer do we have to wait for justice? A little longer. You see, the wrath of God are like great waters that are dammed up for the present. Just slowly building. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher until an outlet's given. And then the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid it's going to be when it's released. Romans, Romans 2.5 But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, 
but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. You see, God tells us about this day over and over and over in the Bible. There's going to be a day when the full fury of God's love for holiness and justice is unleashed on those who rejected him. Unfair, you say? Think about all that he's done. He had to punish sin, but at the same time, he unveiled a plan to rescue us. In his holiness, he couldn't couldn't ignore our rebellion. He had to punish sin and pour out the appropriate and full measure that that sin requires. But he knew we couldn't survive it. You see, God knew, if I pour out my wrath on my creation, they're done. It's done. There's no way these people can stand in my wrath. I can't tone down my wrath because I'm holy. I'm righteous and I'm just. I have to go to earth myself because I'm the only one who could stand in my own wrath. See, all we have to do is believe in Jesus. Trust what he did on the cross. And if everyone does that, God's wrath will never be released from heaven. Problem is, that's an if. But before we go too far, let me share a sobering truth with you. No one experiences God's wrath unless they first decide to step over Jesus' dead body and say it means nothing to them. That what he did on the cross doesn't matter. That what he did on the cross we don't need. Thank you, God, but no thanks. And yet, crazy as that seems, that's exactly what most people are doing. Why? Because they're trying to fit Jesus into their box of understanding. They're limiting God to their own humanism. They're seeing only what their limited minds can understand, and they're missing everything supernatural about the cross. You see, we think about God in human terms. And we don't understand him, and too many people see him as a flawed human who has anger issues. That leads us, in this case, to see a God of wrath the way we think wrath exists in humans. You see, the problem with much of today's theology and preaching is not that the wrath of God is exaggerated, but it's suppressed. You can't tell them what the Bible says about the wrath of God. It'll scare them away. So how does this happen? Do you remember in week one, When I told you about humanism infiltrating the church? Humanists. If a humanist is forced to acknowledge God, they see him as a God that serves man rather than the other way around. Okay, because humanists have put human on their pedestal. So if God exists, he exists at our pleasure, our leisure. We can make him what we want him to be. We can make his word say what we want it to say. The idea that man would be judged and held accountable by God is unacceptable to a humanist. 
No, it would never happen. So they have influenced and taught a God that is here for human purposes, not supernatural ones. So it follows that this and any God who wishes to be accepted today needs to be tolerant, needs to respect human rights, accept my view of truth, punish only those that we think should be punished and only as much as we say they should be. He gives unlimited second chances, they would say, and makes us feel warm and comforting and sentimental. Doing exactly what we would do if we were God. So from a humanist perspective, the God of the Old Testament has serious anger issues. He he seems to soften a bit in Jesus, but he's going to return for the tribulation, Armageddon, and his judgment is not loving. Do you know the sad part of humanism? (laughs) Many, but do you know the sad part? You're only limited to your perspective and your understanding. You miss out on the incredible things that God reveals about supernatural events. You miss out on who God really is because you're not willing and open to who he reveals himself to be. Sadly, humanists never see or understand supernatural component of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, and yes, God's wrath. Without the Spirit of God to teach us and guide us, when we hear of God's wrath, we define it in terms that we have experienced. From a human experience, when we see wrath, just think about this for a minute. The times you've seen somebody wrathful, they're out of control. They're destructive, they're bitter, they're angry, they're impulsive. They have no restraint, they can't stop. They're unloving, it's unplanned, it's unmeasured, and the goal of human wrath is total destruction of whatever we're angry about. You see, human wrath has no limits. It continues until somebody makes it stop. And sometimes human wrath is inappropriate, unwarranted unjust and vicious. There have been times when humans have poured out wrath on innocent people who didn't do what they thought they did. And it comes in our lives, our wrath comes when we're the least loving and it's poured out on people we have no regard for. We light up on somebody in our anger and rage. We're out of control. So we have to talk about the huge elephant in the room of end times. Do I have the wrong view of the wrath of God or do I have the wrong view of God? If you struggle with the idea of God's wrath, let me share with you that you probably have both the wrong view of God and the wrong view of his wrath. Because when you fully grasp the character, nature, and holiness of God, His wrath makes total sense. Let's look at a story in the Old Testament about what God told the prophet Nahum regarding the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a city gone crazy. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. 
His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, those are mountains, wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and rocks are broken into pieces by him. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. Stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Right in the middle of the verse of his wrath, the Lord's good. Wow, sounds like God is off the chain. Did God actually do those things to Nineveh? Can you go visit Nineveh today? Do you have any idea where Nineveh is? Dust, it's gone. What we're reading here is how God really felt. Did God react with abuse and abuse his power and anger and wrath? Simply lash out? No. Did God just build up his anger and then gradually one day, boom, Nineveh's toast? No. See, that's how human anger works. It's not godly anger. God's wrath in the Bible, his anger in the Bible, is never self-indulgent. It's never for him. It's never irritable. It's never set off like a short fuse. His wrath is right and necessary reaction to moral evil. God is holy and can't stand sin because he's holy. This is what he expresses through Nahum. You see, God's wrath, when God expresses his wrath, it's not like a human losing his temper. God doesn't flash with anger, take some unsuspecting nearby angel and hurl them across the universe. And then go, oh, sorry, I lost, I just lost it, come back. I treated, I wasn't thinking. No, God doesn't lash out, read the Bible. Warning after warning after warning. Don't make me do this. Please. Stop what you're doing. I don't want to have to do what my holiness demands. Please stop. Were you ever told to count to ten before you react in anger? It's good advice. When God gets angry, he counts for centuries. He holds back his anger and wrath and contemplates his response, he makes sure his response is, is measured, appropriate, poured out on the right person. God never makes a mistake when he pours out his wrath. It's calculated. It's measured. He's not out of control. It's the right expression of his holiness and justice. It's never mysterious. It's never irrational. It's never malicious, it's never spiteful, it's not even vindictive. It's a predictable because it's aroused by injustice. It's aroused by law-breaking and evil, and that alone, nothing more, nothing less. Those actions require payment. I paid for it myself, or you can pay for it yourself. 
But the payment is measured to the problem. It's not out of control. It's appropriate. Never wrong, never reactionary, always just. And you may be sitting here thinking, seriously, Frank, have you read the Old Testament? God gets angry at Adam and Eve and places death on everybody else. He gets mad at the world, he sends a flood. Every time his people worship other idols and intermarry or do something else he doesn't like, he punishes them. With regard to his enemies, he seems to have no regard. He just wipes them out, including mothers and children. He totally destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent plague after plague on Egypt. He allowed the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians to conquer, murder, rape his chosen people. God has a problem. He needs anger management. He needs to spend more time in charm school. Sure seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, honestly. I mean, this is what we fear as Christians, right? I mean, how do we reconcile the incredible love that we know God has for us, that we've experienced ourselves with the wrath that we know he has to possess? Makes no sense. If you look at it from a human perspective, but what if what's happening is supernatural? What if we don't understand God because our view of God is limited? You see, this is a line not to be crossed by a humanist. A humanist would say there's no way there's any part of God that a human couldn't understand and explain or control. You see, God can't possess and attribute what I can't explain with my mind, they would say. Yet for those who have the Spirit of God, this is where the journey into the incredible begins. You see, while God reveals most things to us as humans, most of the deep secrets of God are revealed only to us in the Spirit. You see, God saves the deeper aspects of who He is, the deeper aspects of understanding Him to those who only truly want to know. 1 Corinthians 2.6 Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Mature in Christ he's talking about. Although it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Translated the humanists. Who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of God. For their folly to him. Not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, these truths come only to those who are spiritually discerned. To those who have the spirit of God. We're on a need to know basis. And those who surrender to Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit's going to teach you all things. Bring to remembrance what you couldn't remember. Empower you to go forward. It's the Spirit of God that is the operating system that allows you to understand the supernatural things of God. Does that make sense? 
In other words, without the Spirit of God, you're in the wrong operating system if you're trying to understand God. It's only by being spiritually discerned that we can understand God's holiness and then the, the motivation for his wrath. So what deep spiritual truth are we missing if we limit ourselves to human understanding? You see, we struggle with God's wrath because we don't appreciate his holiness. Jesus came to earth as Messiah knowing he had one single mission. He had to die on the cross. Not just to die on the cross, he had to suffer and die on the cross. Because he knew full well the magnitude of the wrath that it was going to take to save us. We don't. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was coming. We still don't realize what happened on that cross. He knew. He knew how much had been stored up in heaven. He knew how many people had cried out for justice. He knew the sins of the people and the sins that hadn't even been committed yet. He had to take the Father's wrath for all the sins ever committed and being committed, and they're all building up like water behind a great dam. The only thing holding them back was the patient hand of God. But because of God's holiness and righteousness, that wrath one day has to be released. And on that day, on that afternoon, he poured out every ounce of his wrath on himself. We call it propitiation. One of the most important theological terms for every Christian to know. Propitiation means Jesus paid it all. That when he went to the cross, he took the full wrath of the Father for all of us. It's not Jesus went to the cross and. He went to the cross. The full weight of everybody's sin was placed on him. The wrath and anger that was appropriate and just was poured out on him by the Father on himself. Jesus stood in our place and received for us the full weight, the full magnitude, the full fury of God's unleashed wrath that comes from his holiness and his hate of sin. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant it. What he meant was man's sin has now been fully paid. Every person, every sin. Even for those that haven't even yet been born and thought about how to sin. Nothing left. The Father justified our punishment for all of our sins. Minus one. Satisfied. That's what propitiation means. That's what happened on the cross. The supernatural wrath of God was poured out on our sacrificial Lamb of God, our Savior. Why is that important? Because it changes everything. It changed the mission of Jesus. It changed the way we see Jesus. It changes the way we see Him at His second coming. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, listen to this, 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Note the status change. After ascending to the Father, after being the sacrificial lamb, after being accepted as the sinless substitute, Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth. And because he now has all authority, he is the final judge. Who is worthy? Jesus Christ is worthy. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, reminder, his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. John 5, 22, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that we may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. John 5, 26, for the father has life in himself. So he granted the son able to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus will return to judge. And he'll return in his full glory. And when people see Jesus return in his full, full glory, there's only going to be one response. Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So with the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, when Jesus first came to earth, he came as a, a dependent, helpless little baby. When he returns, fully God, fully glorified, fully in power, full of judgment. Why? Because of propitiation because of what he did on the cross. But see, we've humanized Jesus in his glory, and because of that, we don't appreciate his holiness. You see, without a full appreciation of his holiness, we can't understand how offensive the sin of rejecting him really is. I mean, think about this. He came down from heaven. He took the wrath of God for every sin, and somebody looks at him and says, I don't want it. What is the appropriate response? You see, it's only when we recognize the value of something that we appreciate what happens when it gets defaced. If we don't understand all that Jesus did on the cross, we can't understand how offensive it is to reject what he did on the cross. Suppose I told you that while I was backing up in the parking lot out here, I don't know what happened, I hit and seriously damaged the car. What's your first question? Was it my car? Right? Does that have value to you? 
what I would ask. Uh, which car did you actually hit? Once you find out it's not your car, how big of a deal is this? What's your next question? What kind of car was it? Oh, well, it was a 1971 Ford Pinto with 200,000 miles on it. And it had a lot of damage. I don't even think it runs. And you say, that's not a big deal. Just take out $20 plus whatever the gas is worth, which is probably a lot, and just pay it off. Give it to them. What if I told you it was a 1955 Mercedes-Benz SLR Coupe, which is worth $142 million? Big deal, right? Do you see how the value of something changes? Now think about the response of each of the owners when they hear of my erratic driving. The Pinto owner who doesn't value the car says, oh, that's nothing. The Mercedes owner goes ballistic because he's put a lot of value on the car. If you can understand that, then you can understand the wrath of God. You see, we don't fully understand the appropriate and measured outpouring of the wrath of God because we think of His holiness like a Pinto instead of a Mercedes. And because we undervalue God's glory, His holiness, and His purity, we don't see how damaging our sins really are. If we could just see Him once, one time in His glory... To see how pure and how holy and how perfect and how glorious and how loving he is, we would understand, begin to understand how offensive our sins are to a holy God. And how he must respond to that offense. You see, he's so holy and so gloriously perfect, it would be out of character for him to ignore sin and totally in his character to hate it because he knows what it does to us. His wrath is loving and a righteous response to anything that keeps us from his holiness. He looks out on the world and he goes, 90% of things people are praying for me is self-induced. The world has rejected me and they want me to fix it. But they don't want me. You see, in essence, his holiness is manifested in his wrath. You want to know the value of something? Go out to the parking lot and see which two people are going crazy. And you would say, well, you just leveled a $142 million car. Of course he's angry. Okay. You just took away a whole bunch of people who could have been saved, Satan, you're offending my holiness. I've done everything for these people. Of course God's angry. How could he not be? His holiness is manifested in his wrath. And his wrath is an expression of his love. If we could grasp Jesus and his holiness, if we knew the value of that, we'd begin to understand how sin is so contrary to who he is. That he has to pour out his wrath on sin. He's good. He's so incredibly good that he must incredibly hate what's bad. He's so pure, so perfect, so beyond anything we've ever experienced. We try to fit him in a human box. We think God is a really good person. Somehow a sinless person. We picture Jesus 
But his second coming is nothing like the first. When Jesus returns, he's going to be fully glorified, totally empowered, completely divine, and on a judgment. He'll be in his glory. The first time Jesus was fully God, fully man. Second time, he's all God. In his full, undiminished, explosive glory. Don't look for a baby in a manger. Look for God in his glory. He gave us a sneak preview once. Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Look at what Peter says. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's like, I was there. I saw it. Notice that it was spiritually revealed to those who joined him on the mountain that day. They climbed up that mountain knowing they were following this incredible man, but they came down from that mountain knowing they'd seen the gloriness of God. They were instantly transformed from men who had a human understanding of God to men who now spiritually understood who he was. It's as if Jesus pulled off his humanness and showed them the full glory, purity, holiness, and righteousness of who he really is. When Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of his glory, they fell on their faces and worshipped him. When all of heaven saw his glory, they too fell on their faces and worshipped him. The human response to holiness is to always fall on your face because you don't belong there and you know it. Their response is the same that every human has when they recognize the presence of the supernatural, they bow down and worship recognizing they don't belong. Just like the prophet Isaiah when he found himself in the presence of God. Foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I hear people all the time arrogantly tell me when they die and they're in the presence of Jesus, they're going to explain to him why they should be in heaven and tell him what he should do. They're going to be on their faces, shaking like a dog during a thunderstorm, unable to speak, losing control of bodily functions, begging for mercy, and maybe first, the first time in their life, realizing the futility of their humanistic view of God. No human stands in the glory of God with any form of composure. We'd all lose it. Just like Isaiah and everybody else who's ever been in the presence of God's holiness, we're immediately aware that we don't belong there. And what's keeping us from there is our sin. We are people of unclean lips. 
John was taken in the spirit to see Jesus in heaven. Look at his response. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were brownished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. You see, it's only by experiencing him in the Spirit that we realize the magnitude of his glory and holiness. And it's in the presence of that holiness that we reveal that those who have the Spirit of God, we understand that our, our sins don't even belong in the same galaxy with His holiness. He's too pure for us. He's so holy that we begin to understand how offensive our sins are in His presence. He's so holy, we realize that we have to hate our sins too and pour out His wrath upon them. We have to die to our flesh. To do anything else would diminish our understanding of His holiness. In His presence right now in heaven, look at what's going on every day all the time. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all the elders fell down and worshiped. It's going on all the time. The Jesus that we're waiting for is that Jesus. Yet we picture that he's going to come back like a human friend with a checklist and a curve. We think he's going to come back loving and forgiving and full of mercy and giving another second chance and grace. And we picture him carrying a lamb with children sitting in his lap. Maybe pointing us to the right or left based on how we perform, but surely grading on a curve and giving us all the benefit of the doubt. That dream is nowhere in the Bible. Let me remind you of Jesus that does return to earth. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, rod of iron. He'll, look at this. He is clothed in robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Go back up, I skipped one. I saw heaven opened. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, a white horse. And in his righteousness, what does he do? He judges and makes war. His eyes are the flame of fire, his head are on many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed, dripped in blood. The name by which he's called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which would strike down the nations. 
truth of God. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Okay, so let me stop there. Winepress. Grapes pressed by stone, crushed, 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 crushed. Out comes liquid. Notice that the wrath of God still exists. Okay? We, as Christians, often say, and it's true, it's in Scripture, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is condemnation for those who aren't. Okay? The wrath, God poured out every ounce of his wrath on Jesus for those who will believe. But if they reject Jesus, that wrath has not been paid, and his holiness still demands it. You understand that? That's what we're fighting for. You don't have to stand in the wrath of God. So, notice who has been given the fury of God. Jesus himself. All authority and power in heaven. I'm also the judge. And let me tell you, I'm not happy about people who've rejected me. Who's the best person on the planet, the best to ever judge what happened on the cross? The person who was on the cross. I did this for you, and you rejected me. Do you want to talk about it or not? On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth. Political leaders. Gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's the future. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The Bible's crystal clear. Jesus came the first time as a human to save the world. He's returning in his full glory, full power to judge the world and satisfy the remaining wrath upon those who refuse to accept what Jesus did on the cross and place their trust in him. It is important to understand that the final exam for the people of the world is not based on the number of your sins, the number of hours you've spent in church, the good things you've done for people, the money you've given to the poor, or even the knowledge you have about Jesus and the Bible. The only thing Jesus will be judging is have you acknowledged that your sins deserve the righteous wrath of a holy God, and did you trust Jesus to take your place? If you trust Jesus as your Savior, then God has no more wrath left for you. Jesus paid it all. We call it propitiation. And that's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you reject what Jesus did on the cross, then the full wrath of a holy God is definitely on your horizon. You might as well put it in your date book. It would be completely unholy for a holy God to ignore your sin. To ignore the pleas from those your sins have hurt who have been crying out for justice because of what you did to them. It would be too unloving and unjust to allow you to be sinful and not have the wrath of that sin against His holiness paid for. If you don't trust Jesus to stand in your place, please hear clearly, you better get ready for your own cross experience. Because you will be cross-examined. 
and the full weight of God's wrath is on your horizon. You see, if you don't understand the weight of what you're up against, you'll never know what it means to be saved. Do you know what you've been saved from? I could candy coat it. I could try to make you feel better about it. I could try to make you look at what's going to happen, and yet that would be uncaring and unloving and sinful and humanistic. You see, once we understand the holiness and wonder of God, then we can understand that his wrath is nowhere near like human wrath. Human wrath is always motivated by hate. God's wrath is motivated by love. Human wrath is focused on destruction. God's wrath is focused on salvation. Wrath is his love in action against sin. The wrath of God is meant to bring the people back to God. But not everyone will be brought back. Not everyone will be convinced. And those who continue to reject God, to reject his ways, to reject his love, to reject his mercy, to reject his presence, will eventually get exactly what they've been asking for. They'll have a total absence of God's presence, God's mercy, and God's love in their life for all of eternity. But interesting, the writer of Revelation we're going to see doesn't mean for this book to be depressing. John thinks it's a message of hope that will go to the victims of the world who've seen injustice and misery and pain, who've longed for evil to end, who want desperately for crime and violence and wars and cruelty to come together and cease forever, who pray over and over, quickly, Lord, quickly come. You see, God's wrath doesn't come when he's the least loving, nor is it destructive, angry, or bitter. It's the loving father who speaks up for the victims and finally says, enough. There is a limit to the amount of suffering God will allow. When we read in the newspaper about a drunk driver running over and kills someone, we pray for the wrath of God to run over and extinguish their life. God, do something. When we read about sexual predators exploiting children or young ladies being sold into sex trade or suicide bombers killing innocent people, martyrs being beheaded by ISIS or trying to understand God's response to the Holocaust, Holocaust, The list goes on and on. God, are you ever going to do anything? Yep, the water's just building behind the dam. I'm patient, loving. It doesn't change the response that's coming. You see, in response to that, the book of Revelation speaks a word of hope. It's a promise to the victims. The forces on our world that make poverty, crime, rape, abuse, sexual predators, wars, dictatorships, terrorists, they're not going to be allowed to continue forever. God's wrath will be poured out seven bowls of it, full, overflowing. No, not like human wrath that seeks destruction, but divine wrath that seeks loving restoration of a broken relationship. One of the things we're going to see in Revelation is every time a bowl is poured out or a seal is broken, God looks down at the earth and says, does anybody else love me yet? Oh no, there's still people that, okay, here's another one. Do you believe me yet? Do you believe me yet? The foreshadowing with the plagues of Egypt. Do you believe I'm the God of the Jewish people or not? Oh, not yet? Okay, what about now? 
You see, revelation is God just over and over and over giving people the last chances to turn to him. And we read in that book that many will because it's going to take that to get them to realize that he's God. God's wrath in the Bible is never erratic. It's never self-indulgent. It's never irritable. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil in our world. It's God fulfilling his promise to all the victims. God's wrath is not blind rage. It's measured. It's appropriate. It's been thought out. It's been planned. That sin requires this amount of wrath to restore my holiness. There's his love at the same time is unconditional. He loves the people that his wrath still demands that he pay. Even while he's, if y'all have children, you've done this. Even while you're punishing your children, you still love them. You want the best for them. You're, you're upset that they're where they are. But even a parent, hopefully, a Christian parent is measured in their response and coats it with love because our Heavenly Father did the same. His love is unconditional. He loves those whose sin, his holiness, demands be treated with wrath. He loves and demands justice at the same time. There's nothing impossible about wrath and love being directed to the same individual or people at once. Okay? Wrath and love can often and are turned to the same people at once. God allowed his people to be invaded by Babylonians and Assyrians, and he loved them desperately. God in his perfection must be wrathful against those who deny him and worship other gods, for they've offended him. He must be loving for them because he's that kind of God. Now, finally, the last point I want to make, and I know this is going on, but we got food for you, okay? <laughs> Let me tell you the reason why this one's so long. I can't stop in the middle of explaining God's wrath because I run the risk of you leaving with an incomplete picture and Satan attacking the truth that's been taught here. So we're going to go a few more minutes. The reality of God's wrath is that it's something we choose. Did you hear that? Nobody steps into God's wrath unless they choose it. We can either experience the favor of God or we can choose to reject God's goodness and plans for us and do it ourselves. In the Bible, we're told that those who wanted to sin, God gave them over to their minds. What Paul implies is that God allowed them to go their own way in order they might learn to hate the futility of the life they're doing. Go ahead, chase life your way. When you get to the end, don't forget. You can turn back to me, God says. But not everybody can keep running all the time. God used their sin to bring back the emptiness in their life and to try to get them to turn back to him. That's what happens. He allows us just enough leeway to show that we shouldn't be God. And for a while, he allows us to be turned over to our own flawed thinking. And then he says, are you ready to come home yet? Are you ready? Have you had enough yet? We can't misunderstand what we think when we hear God gave up, gave up on them. 
Rather, being a God who desires worship and human choice, he allowed us to choose. He gave them over to their sinful desires, their shameful lusts, their depraved mind, because that's what they wanted. What they wanted was to be separate from God and not accountable for anything they do. Therein they experience the wrath of God, for to be separated from God is not just about flames and brimstone, but about being cut off from life itself. You see, so the wrath of God only awaits those who choose it. And everybody who chooses it is going to look Jesus straight in the eyes and say, what you did didn't matter to me. I didn't need you to go to the cross. I don't care that you went to the cross. I got this. In essence, God's wrath is simply giving people what they've chosen. John 3, 36, for whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice that word remains. Every person in this world is born with the wrath of God on them. Sinful enemies of God, deep in sin, rejecting God, the wrath is on them. Okay? Those who have surrendered to Jesus were cleansed from their sins. The wrath of God is no longer on them because Jesus took their place in propitiation. There are only two groups of people in this world. Those who have the wrath of God on them and those who do not. So let us remember God does not give up on sinners. He may give us over, but he doesn't give up. His desire is that we choose to follow Jesus and discover the life he planned for us. But it's our choice whether we surrender to Jesus or not. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, when Christians say they're saved, have you ever noticed they drop off the rest of the verse? Most Christians haven't really thought about what they're saved from. We've been saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. That's why Jesus is our Savior. Every time you read or hear Savior in the Bible, just in your head think, from the wrath of God. Hebrews 10, 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I love this verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We're soon going to be unpacking the book of Revelation. For many, it's a fearful thing. But we will see in there, there's a reassuring promise of God to set things right. God's wrath is as real as his love. He revealed it to us through the prophets, through the scriptures, through his son, through the Holy Spirit, and now he's going to show it to us in the book of Revelation. Why? Because he loves us. And he never wants us to have to experience what his justice requires. The book of Revelation is a pleading to people, please, don't make me do this to you. Know where you stand. Know which side you're on. You see, God knows better than anybody how horrible his wrath is. That's why Jesus was in the garden, distraught to the point of sweating blood. He knew what the wrath entailed. He knew what was happening. 
He didn't underestimate it. He knew it. I've got to go to that cross and take the absolute full weight of the wrath of God for everybody. Even those that reject it. Remember that God's wrath has been poured out once before. It happened on Golgotha. It was horrible. God never wants to see that kind of wrath poured out on anyone ever again. It's not his choice, though. It's ours. He has to maintain justice and righteousness and holiness. And the price for sin has to be paid. And the price of that sin is his wrath. But it's measured, it's appropriate, and it's wholly destructible to any human. God has done everything possible to try to give us another option. He loves us desperately, and his love is unconditional. His message through the prophets, the scriptures, the signs, and the book of Revelation is supposed to show us how horrible his wrath is. And beg Jesus to take it away from us. You see, it's in his wrath that he fully expresses his love. You can't separate them, and you can't gloss over what makes you uncomfortable. It's in understanding his holiness and his purity that you see his response to sin as measured, loving, and appropriate. Jesus is the only one who knows what it's like to stand in the righteous fury of a holy God. That's why all authority has been given to him. That's why he's the judge. That's why no one comes to the Father except through him. That's why he's being so patient. He doesn't want to see anybody go through that. Peter, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. You see, when we think of the cross, its value is fully understood only when we recognize the magnitude of God's wrath because we finally understand the purity of his holiness. The cross is all about God's love, but it's also about his wrath, and the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. That's why Jesus told us to remember that one day, God will say enough is enough. He'll come like a thief. And we're closer to that moment than we've ever, ever been in history. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you don't ignore the victims. I thank you that you don't excuse away sin. Forgive us, God, when we underestimate your holiness and because of that think sin is somehow not a big deal. God, I pray that this message would get out to people who need to hear it. We are headed to that judgment day and it seems like it's going to be quickly. So God, would you allow this study to begin to open hearts? Holy Spirit, teach your truth to those who've been stiff-arming you. Break through the barriers. If that's you, just ask God to just allow you, if possible, 
to just put down your objections for long enough to explore what this could mean. God is begging us not to make him unleash his wrath upon you. But he will love you and he will do it. But the choice is yours. If you need to know more about what it means to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to make sure that you know which group on earth you're in, I want you to come meet with me and Ed and some of the elders after the service. I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. I'm going to ask you to pray with me silently from your heart. There's a time when we all have to get in front of a holy God and acknowledge that we're sinful people with unclean lips who don't belong in his presence. We have to acknowledge that our sins have impacted his holiness, that our sins have hurt other people. You see, we have to fully own what we've done before we can be rescued from it. Too many people gloss over the way they've hurt other people, what they've done to other people, and how many of their victims are crying out to you right now that you'd bring justice on them? God, every one of us that's walked on this earth has hurt people. I know there are people who are crying out for justice. And yet you love each and every one of us. So God, help us to understand your holiness so we'll understand your righteousness will understand sin and will understand your wrath and most importantly will understand what Jesus did on the cross and how everything changes because he stood there for us so God for those who are hearing about this or you're moving them maybe there's a voice inside maybe there's a prompting maybe there's something inside going man this could be true that's God I pray for you right now that the Holy Spirit would begin to reveal to you your true situation and where you stand with God. Not glossed over, not with curves, not grading on a curve, not thinking that you're better than somebody else, so surely they should go to hell and you shouldn't. This is all about whether you accept what Jesus did. Maybe today's the first day you've actually heard and understood what propitiation really means that Jesus paid it all and that you either accept that or reject it but it's your choice so right now if that's you just ask God to reveal to you the magnitude of the pain that you've caused own your sin own what you've done to people confess to God and ask for forgiveness Trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Accept him as, as fully as you can accept him, knowing that what he did was in your place. Ask God to receive, to allow you to enter into his kingdom because of your profession of faith and what Jesus has done for you. You can't be saved until you first own your sins, take responsibility for them, and ask for forgiveness. So God, move in this room, move in those that are listening online. We are headed towards end times. Your wrath is coming. Your fury is coming. And no one stands in it unless they choose. So Holy Spirit, now more than ever, move people to make sure they know where they stand. For those who have been following Jesus for a long time and you know that the Spirit's in you, 
we need to make sure that we are on page with what's happening as we head towards end times. We need to make sure that if we have an unrepentant sin that we deal with it because it could keep us from being fully effective in our world. God, we pray for all of our family members, all of our friends, all the people we cross on the street who do not know or have not yet responded to your holiness and are doomed for the wrath of God. So God, thank you for waiting. Thank you for waiting for our friends and our children and our coworkers and our family members. Thanks for not releasing your wrath yet. But God, allow this truth to motivate us to know that we have to reach. Because there's a day coming when the thief comes in the night and says enough. God, protect, protect us from our own arrogance. Protect us from our own pride. Save us, God, from ourselves and from Satan. And it's in Jesus' name.